The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. for a more beautiful morning to meet outside. Just this wind, it's, this is the time you enjoy living in San Antonio, Texas, right here. Uh, But I I hope you're doing well. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, would you grab them? And would you open with me to Romans 12? Uh, We have been on a journey through Romans, and uh, we are going to, by God's grace, finish chapter 12 today. So that's where we are headed. Um, Listen, as you're getting there, this sermon is going to be a tough one. Um, Chances are it's not going to be one of your favorites. Uh, It's going to be a tough one because I think this sermon hits close to home. Uh, Really close to home, especially, I mean, for me, this hits close to something that I think is at the core of being a human. kind of to set the stage, I'd love to just get us to think about something. Um, When you think about Christian community, when you think about what what community is supposed to be like, when you think about that, what do you think about? We think, maybe you think about love and unity. Uh, You think about people who have your backs. You think about family. You think about In a world where maybe you feel alone, well, here you're not alone. You you think about all these things, the good things that we think about when we read about true Christian community in Scripture. In fact, if if you were with us last week, you might think about our our verse last week. Our verse last week that talked about, in verse 9, genuine love. A community who doesn't want evil but clings to what is good. We think about a community that is loving with brotherly affection outdoing one another in honor. We read about caring for people and hospitality in that verse. Maybe that's what you think about. And, and that vision of community is awesome. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? That is, the word I, I, I think about is shalom. It's peace and it's wholeness and it's everything it's supposed to be. But what happens when that bubble pops? And and what happens when sin sticks its nasty little head into that mix? What happens, let's get on the ground tangible here, when you get hurt? What happens when you hurt someone else? What happens when uh, there's conflict? What happens when there's strife? And what happens when there's jealousy? What happens when community that's, it's supposed to be a safe place, turns out to be anything but? What happens when we get hurt by people we love and the bubble goes up? What happens when our vision and hope for what Christian community should be 
when that does not match the reality that we see in front of us. In this world, in this fallen world, to use the language I already started to use, uh, our bubbles are going to get popped. Things aren't going to be the way that they're supposed to be. In fact, a Christian community is a group of sinners, like you included. And we come together in all of our mess, and, and because of sin, community is messy, and shalom gets broken. I, I had a professor once who gave me a phrase that I think is even better. He said, it's vandalized shalom. Shalom gets vandalized. Now, to be clear, you still need community. To be clear, you still need to be a part of a family. You were created for that. You were created for friendship and care. We still need these things in online friends. They may serve some purpose, but they don't serve this one. And, and we need the embodied community that we were called to be a part of as human beings. We need that. At the same time, in this fallen world, you are a sinner doing life with other sinners, and your bubbles will get popped, and it will be messy. Um, and honestly, I only brought up the community here in the church. I didn't even mention the fact that you're doing life in other, whether it be your job or families, where, where, where you're around even messier people. Like, what do you do? If you've never thought about this, 100% of the relationships that you are in are with broken, sin sinful people. 100% of them. What do we do with that? When God promises us shalom, and because of sin, we're living in a vandalized version of shalom. The question for us this morning is, how do we live in this kind of community? How do we handle vandalism? How do we handle broken people? How do we deal with broken relationships? How do we deal with strains in community? And to begin together, I would just love to read our text. Just start to finish, I just want to read it. As I do, I just want to encourage you to just kind of sit with this and take this in and to understand this is God's word to you and to me. Let me read this. I'm going to be in 14. We're going to go all the way through the end of, of verse 21. Paul says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Behold, or beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Let's pray together this morning. God, you are perfect and holy in every way all the time. You have created us for shalom, your shalom, your perfect peace and wholeness. Yet because of sin, our fallenness, our fallen world, we experience a broken shalom today. And so through your word this morning, I just... I ask that you would speak. Would you show us how we are to live? Would you show us how we are to be shalom in a community that is broken? Would you show us your grace? And would you teach us to show that grace to others? And most importantly, Lord, would you give us a better picture and glimpse of the good news of Jesus this morning? And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I read this text, I hope that you um, realized and saw that there is nothing new under the sun. Um, these statements, as, we, as I read them, I hope you realize none of this is new. In fact, each one of these statements, it's kind of like a repeat from Paul in another place or, or uh, Jesus' words. I mean, look at this. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Church, that's Matthew 5, 44. That's the words of Jesus. Paul just giving us the words of the Sermon on the Mount, giving it back to us. We look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is a very similar command to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul's telling the body of Christ how to, how to live together. I could go line by line through our text, and I could show you how it connects dots all over, the, all over Scripture. In fact, if you have a, um, a Bible with cross-references, you already see this. Each one of these phrases, each one of these words, um, you see references all throughout Scripture. And here's what the beauty of this text is. Paul is going to bring them all together and bring them to bear on this, in this text. Um, so what does life look like? Going back to our, our question... What does life together as human beings look like in a fallen world? Um, that is what our text is getting us to see. And so here's what I want to do. I want to read our text and ask this question, what does it look like for us to live in a broken community? How do we handle vandalism? I'd like to read our text just by asking that question. Here's what I mean. Today, how do we live in a fallen world and how do we handle vandalism? Well, it means that you bless those who persecute you. It means that you bless them and you do not curse them. What does it mean to live in a fallen world and to deal with broken shalom? What does it mean? Well, it means that you rejoice with those who rejoice. It means that you weep with those who weep. What does it look like when the world is broken around you and we live in this world? Well, it means, church, verse 16, that you live in harmony with one another. It means that we're not haughty, that we associate with the lowly. It means we strive for humility. It means that we're never wise in our own sight. What does it mean to live in this world? Well, it means that you repay no evil for evil, but you give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In a broken world, in a community of broken shalom, it means that if possible, so far as it depends on you, it means that you live peaceably with everyone. This is what it means. This is how we live our lives together in community. This is how we handle life 
in a community that has been popped by sin. This is how we do it. Paul says, look, you're going to get hurt. You don't have to raise your hand. How many people have been hurt? Actually, if I did have you, you better be 100% of us. Paul says, if you've ever been hurt by someone, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But our hearts cry out for vengeance, God, like justice is good, right? Instead, Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul says in a community that's broken at the heart of it, when we get hurt, we don't fight fire with fire. Instead, verse 20 says, to the contrary, we feed our enemies. We give our enemies a drink. We don't, we're not overcome by evil. We overcome evil with good. In other words, when you will, we will get hurt from time to time. And when we do, we will not hurt in return. We will not fight fire with fire. We will not take the fight in our own hands. Instead, Paul says, we trust, we give it to the Lord who is the judge. Vengeance is his. We trust him to make it right, and then we do good as much as depends on us. I said this probably wouldn't be your favorite sermon. I meant that because this is a hard one. This is really difficult to actually live. It pushes against instinct sometimes. It's really difficult to do because when we're hurt, when we're wrong, when we're wronged, all we want to do is to be justified and to make it right to be avenged. And here Paul is reminding us, God has got this. In a community, think about it like this. If community, when community is nothing but sunshine and lollipops, it's so easy. When everyone gets along and everyone loves each other and nothing ever happens, it's bad and we're all just surfacey and it's good, it's really easy. But here's the thing, it does not last long. Stick around any community for long enough and you will pop it if it's not already been popped. You will pop it and, and, and it will be vandalized and, and you, if you're honest, will realize you have a hand in that vandalism. And so Paul's instruction to us Taking all of this in is how we are to live in that. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at two things in our text as we bring this together. Two things as we bring all of this to two parts. The first part, I'm going to give them both to you and then we'll walk through them. First part is this. What are the things that are in our control and the things that are not? Part number one. Part number two is how do we see the gospel through this vandalized shalom? Part number two, okay? So in our time, we're going to work through each of these parts together in our, in our verse. So I want to start with the first one. The first one is this. What are the things that are in your control, in my control, and what are the things that are not? One of the most important things that you and I can do when we live in a fallen world is asking and answering these questions. It's to determine what is mine and what is not. What should I be taking control of? And, and what should I not? Um, here's, the, here's the reality. 
for the sake of, of clarity, in, in most cases, in most cases, this is how it, it breaks down. If, if, if this represents all the things, okay? I don't have a screen. I would have put it on here. Instead, I'm just going to do these weird motions, okay? <laughs> this represents all the things. This represents, this represents how much is actually in your control. In most cases, totality of things, your things. Just for some perspective. In most cases, the things that are on our plate is our actions, our decisions, our responses, what we do and what we refuse to do. That is yours to control. All of the other stuff, what they do, the outcomes, their decisions, what they are going to say, all of that falls out of your control. Another way to, to think about this is you are responsible for your shalom. You are responsible for the way you vandalize the shalom, and you are responsible for the way you respond to others when shalom has been vandalized. That is yours. That is in your little circle. And that's what you're going to give an account for. If you look at our text, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless them, don't curse them. What's not in your control is whether or not they persecute you. What's not in your control is whether or not you are cursed or what they do to you. That's not in your control. What is in your control is what you do. Will you bless them? That's in yours. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Here's the deal. What's not in your control is what's happening in the lives of others. Whether or not they are rejoicing or whether or not they are weeping, you can't control that. What can you control? What's yours to control is will you weep when they're hurting? Will you weep with them? Will you celebrate with them when they are rejoicing? That's yours. Verse 16, live in harmony. <laughs> with one another. Um, but just in case you're wondering, like, how, is, how on earth is that in my control? Paul follows up. If, at, in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, meaning the things in your little bitty control circle. As far as it depends on you. This is why Paul focuses on you when he says, don't be haughty, don't associate, or associate with the lowly. Don't you dare be wise in your own sight. This is why he says in verse 17, don't repay evil for evil, give, give thought to do what is honorable. You can't control the evil around you. Just don't, what is yours is how you respond. And what you do, we can't control the evil done around us or done to us. But we can control how we respond. And this is the importance of understanding why or what is in my control and what is not. As we look at um, verses 19 through 21, it gets even more clear. Look, I mean, look at this. Verse 19, don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to God. He's got this. He's going to repay evil, says the Lord. What Paul is saying here is, look, it's easy to want to think that revenge should be one of those things that goes from out here and put in our circle. We can control revenge, right? 
And yet here, Paul is saying, no, we give it. Vengeance is not here. It's not in the things that we control. Vengeance does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. He is in control. He has it. And so since vengeance is not in our sphere of control, what do we do? Well, verse 20, we feed our enemies. We give them drinks, and we do good to them. You can't control what your enemy does, but you can control what your actions are to them. You can feed them and meet their evil with kindness and goodness. I want to be really careful here, too. Um, I am not saying that we need to just be trampled by people, to put ourselves in situations where we are just putting ourselves in harm. Um, that is not what I am saying. What I, what I am saying, though, is if you're, if you're being hurt and abused, wisdom might actually be to remove yourself from that situation. So I'm not, I'm not saying that. Um, but even in situations like that, the call for you remains the same. Remove yourself from that situation, but do not give over to hate and evil. The call for us is still to love and to kindness. I've heard it said by many. You can't trace this quote to anyone, by the way. I tried. Uh, resentment, anger, unforgiveness, depending on which quote you pull, is like drinking poison in hopes that it'll kill someone else. It's so good. It's such a good quote. It's drinking poison in hopes that it kills him, kills her. Uh, it, it, it's absurd. And so what Paul is saying here is leave it in the hands of God. Don't drink the poison. Instead, walk in kindness and grace. When we fight fire with fire, everything burns down. Everything goes up in flames. So our call is not to fight evil with evil, but to fight evil with good. To fight evil with good. And not that we're doing this for this reason, but did you notice in the text it says when you do this, it's like heaping coal, hot coals on their head? Um, <laughs> Paul's basically saying, look, do you know how frustrating it is for your enemies who just want to hurt you, for you to not give in to the hate? For you to rise above and for you to not be brought down and, and to choose to forgive instead? That is infuriating. It is infuriating, Paul says. But this is our call. This idea of control is so important because one day you and I will stand before the Lord and give an account. We're going to give an account for how well you and I have stewarded what was yours to care for. You're going to give an account. And, and here's the crazy thing, and this is very much preaching to me. So I'm just going to call this out here. This might be for no one else, but this is very much preaching to myself here. How much of my own time and energy is focused and spent on all of the things that are not mine to control? How much time and energy is dedicated to anxiety and fear and stress and things and outcomes? And at the very same time, how many times do I neglect the simple things that are given to me in exchange for all of those things that are out of my control? My fear is that instead of putting down all the things we can't control and, and, and grabbing onto the things we can, we flip that. And what we've done is we've neglected the things that are ours to control 
and we've given ourselves to fear and anxiety and spinning our wheels for all of the many things that we can't. And I gotta ask, can you imagine what your life would look like? What your mental health would look like if you could focus your energy on the things that are yours and you could trust the Lord with all the rest to give over all of the rest, to know what is mine to control and what is not. There is a prayer uh, that I have written all over the place in, in everywhere in my office and my things because I, I come back to this prayer a lot. It's by Reinald Niebuhr. He says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change the courage to change the things that I can, and listen to this last line, the wisdom to know the difference. Set the heart of this. This is my prayer. As much as it depends on us, we live in peace. So the, our prayer is, Lord, teach me what depends on me. Teach me what depends on us. In a fallen world, in a broken world, in vandalized shalom, Control what is mine and what is not is so important. It's so important to understand. Um, but I need to move on. That's not all. I want to move on to our second part and, and as we bring this together. Because there's something else that's even bigger for us to see. And, and that is how we see the good news of Jesus in broken communities. You're never going to find a perfect community until you're with Jesus. Until then, I want to talk about how we see Jesus in the broken communities, including Stone Oak Bible Church, that God has placed you in. And I, and I love this. And, and to look at this, I want to invite you to turn with me to one other place real quick in Matthew 18. You don't have to turn with me here, but I'm going to be in Matthew 18 here um, as we look at this. Uh, Jesus made some incredibly revolutionary statements in his teachings. Statements that made the world around him go, what on earth is he talking about? Right? He makes these statements that just flip things on, on their head. And one of those things is when Jesus taught about forgiveness. And there's this text in, in Matthew 18 where it was Peter who was scratching his head saying, Jesus, what on earth are you talking about? And in, and in Matthew 18, Peter is the one who's asking a clarification question, um, and, and he's, he's basically saying, Jesus, I get it. We need to forgive, but I need, I need to ask you, and he asks, asks this in verse 21. Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? And then Peter says, as many as seven times? You have to get the impression that Peter was kind of impressed with his suggestion. Like, that's a big number. How awesome am I, Jesus? Seven times? And that's like, plus it's seven. That's a biblical number. So Peter was like, seven times. I got this. But Jesus looks at him and says to him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Again, revolutionary. Revolutionary. Bless those who persecute you. Forgive them. How many times? 
do the math 490 times. Do it that many times. And here's why I wanted you to turn with me here. That part's awesome, but Jesus follows that with a story. And I want to I look at the story that demonstrates this even more clearly. Verse 23, he says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him that owed him 10,000 talents. We don't use talents anymore. We use U.S. dollars. So um, there's a lot of ways to kind of try to figure out how much money we're dealing with here. Depending on, um, depending on what resource you use, I'll give a best estimate that I saw as we try to convert this for the sake of our story. One talent is a lot of money. Like, lots of money. It, the best estimate that I saw was one talent equaled about 15 years of your wages for a normal citizen. That's one talent. We're talking 10,000 talents here. So, easy math, one, that's 150,000 years of wages for a normal worker. It's a crazy amount of money. Most people estimate this figure at about $6 billion. The point here is that's insane. That's the point of this, this crazy high number. It is insane. So we look at this. It's not something easy to be paid back. And we look in verse 24 again. He, he starts to settle, and he has this servant that owed him about $6 billion. And 25 since he could not pay, understatement, never going to pay that. Since he could not pay, he, he ordered him to be sold, his wife, his children, all that he had, so that some kind of payment could be made. But the servant falls on his knees, and he, he implores him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. No, you're not, but that's what he said. Six billion, anyway, uh, verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That is noble and hard to even wrap our minds around, but the story's not over. From that, verse 28, that same, that same guy strolls out, finds one of his fellow servants, verse 28, who owed him a hundred denarii. We don't use denarii. We use dollars. So for the sake of this comparison, let me just best estimates here, a bit of conversion. A um, hundred denarii is known as maybe uh, one third of a year's salary. It's a lot of money. Um, easy math, if you make 40000 a year, you're talking 13333 I'll be generous. I'll round up. $14,000. That's a lot of money. $14,000. Verse 8, that servant went out. He found that servant who owed him $14,000. And here's what happened. He seized him and choked him, saying, pay what you owe. Verse 29, the servant fell down, pleaded with him, same way he just got done pleading, have mercy on me, I will repay you. He might actually have been able to pay that debt. The same servant who had just pleaded for his $6 billion debt, same one, in verse 30, 
he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. I would be too. And they went and reported to their master all that just took place. Then the master called him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And here's the question. You ready for it? Verse 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Story ends with this, verse 34. In his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. That's a lifetime in prison. Then listen to Jesus' words, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we live in a fallen world. Again, I'll say it again. We live in a fallen world. We do life with a bunch of fallen people, and there are sinners everywhere. Everywhere. And here's the thing. It's really easy for us to forget that we are one too. It's really easy to forget that we have sinned against our God. You have sinned against your God, and there is a debt that you can never, ever, ever pay. Six billion is low compared to your debt before your God. You've sinned against your God and there's no amount of money, no amount of work that could pay that off and the wages of that sin, Scripture says, is death. But God... Ephesians says in, ver in chapter 2, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God looked at you, showed you mercy. God looked at you and poured out his grace on you. Through Christ, God has forgiven you of your sin, forgiven, paid the debt in full. Like that servant, it's wiped out. In the story, it was six billion. In your story, it's more. And it's wiped out, completely wiped out. Yet how often do we forget that and we walk out and we hold puny grudges teeny grudges and we won't let it go because how dare them we refuse to forgive and we think that their sin is just too much to forgive for us who have been truly saved by Jesus the truth in scripture is that the amount that you are called to forgive others is always significantly less than the amount that your God forgave you through Jesus. You are the servant who has been forgiven much. That's who you are. As we turn back to our text, bless those who persecute you, bless them, don't curse them. And it's easy for us to say, but you don't know what they've done to me. You don't know what they're doing, and I don't. But what I do know is it's less than your offense to your God. 
I do know that in light of how much you have been forgiven, bless them. Because your God has blessed you through Jesus even when you were his enemy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. But you don't even know how they hurt me. But you don't know. They might still hurt me. I don't get along with them. We need to remember, at one time, you were alienated from your God. Separated from him. Separated from him. And yet God has brought you near through Jesus. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise. Repay no evil uh, for evil. Um, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, I mean, as you look at this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't avenge yourselves, because vengeance is the Lord's. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Church, don't forget that at one time you were an enemy of God. Romans 5.10 says, while we were sinners, we were reconciled, or while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Church, you were his enemy. You were his enemy, but God showed mercy on you. So here's my point. Life is messy. Community is messy. People are messy and sinners, and that includes you. We look around and we see vandalized shalom. And in the midst of that, God is calling you to forgive, to love, to walk in kindness and grace, and to show the people in your life grace. God forgave you and gave you the example of how to forgive. God showed you grace and asked you to show grace. In, in this way, the brokenness all around us, the vandalism of shalom that's all around us only should seek to, it, it should only remind you of how much your God has forgiven you. How much God has met you in your sin and forgiven you. It should remind you of the good news of Jesus. It should remind you of how much you have been forgiven. I want to I end with two challenges for us today from this text. Two challenges, easy, <laughs> not really, easy to understand what the challenge is, harder to, to do. But I want to give you two challenges for us as we, as we seek to apply this scripture. The first challenge, challenge, challenge number one, is each day, each moment, as much as we are able, that we take each thought captive and ask ourselves what is ours to control and what is not. Each thing that we face, each challenge, each trial, what is mine and what is mine to surrender? I'm even encouraging you in these times to say that thing out loud. This is mine to control, and this is mine to surrender to the Lord. Challenge number one. Challenge number two. Each and every day, especially each of those moments when you face a strain in a relationship, a hurt, a pain, a trial, in each of those moments, I want you to do what is so hard to do. Stop and, and in that moment, ask yourself, God, how much have you forgiven me? 
God, would you show me the depths of your grace that you have poured out on me? And so that from that place, I can then show that kind of grace and compassion to the people around me. Those are the challenges. This is the way that we can live and respond to the brokenness around us in a way that is full of grace and in a way that honors our God.